Please be seated. And uh, a very good evening, friends, brothers, and sisters. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Uh, tonight, we continue with our series on the Gospel of Mark. The last one before next week, next Sunday, when we have the triumphant uh, entry or Palm Sunday, as our church knows it. Today, as we continue, we'll be looking at Mark 13, uh, verses 14 to 37, that uh, Reverend Kubuwa read just now. And in the middle of the church bulletin, there is a simple sermon uh, outline that might be helpful uh, to guide us as we begin our meditation or reflection on this passage. Uh, let me lead us in a word of prayer as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, open our hearts to you, to your word, as you speak to us. And Lord, as I share from your word, teach me to be true and faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, last week, friends, uh, for those of you who, are, who were here and have listened to the first uh, of the, our study of Mark 13, uh, we began with Jesus telling Peter, James, John, and Andrew about the destruction of the big temple in Jerusalem. Turn with me to, to verse 4 for their question. It's actually in two parts, for they ask this, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And last week, we saw how Jesus began his answer by preparing them to expect some pretty tough things, some pretty nasty things that will uh, come about soon. There are things like false messiahs, wars and rumours of wars, earthquakes and famines, persecution and deadly strife in families. Fathers will put up their children to be killed and children will put up their parents to be killed. And Jesus said, expect these things, but don't be worried. Don't be worried. Just stay on guard. Well, friends, this week, as we look at the rest of the chapter 13, we will see how Jesus will continue to teach his disciples to stay on guard, to stay alert. Uh, let me read uh, verse 14 to you. Before I read this, I'd I, I like to just bring you back to verse 4, uh, to the question again. When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be accomplished? So verse 14, and Jesus said this, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, well, Jesus seems to be addressing the second part of the question first, isn't it? Regarding the sign when the great stones of the temple will be cast down. And what is this sign? This sign was the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be standing. And then we should be asking ourselves this, what was an abomination of desolation? Well, friends, in the Jewish context, the word abomination could mean one of the following three things. First of all, it could mean an action that God has forbidden. For example, a, uh, a homosexual act. 
an action that God has forbidden. Number two, it could mean also an object that was profane or impure, uh, disgusting or shameful and vile before God, either made by hand by us or by us adopting them from the objects of worship of our neighboring uh, countries, in, in the case of Jews. And number three, or it could equally refer to a vow, an impure person that will cause a holy place dedicated to God to be defiled. Now, the other word, desolation. The other word, desolation, could be understood from Hebrew scriptures to be a place that is deserted. But it has a fuller meaning than just simply being deserted by people. It included being laid to waste, a place that led to waste, or in ruins, unwanted or abandoned, associated sometimes even with a curse. A, 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 a place of desolation is associated sometimes with a curse. I've given you some references, and if you are interested in following up, you could read this up uh, when you're home. And there are many, many more references. Uh, I've just chosen a few of these. But when Jesus spoke to the four disciples and put the two words together, he was pointing to only three passages in the whole of Scripture, and all of them were from the prophet Daniel. They are coming from Daniel 9, 27 that we read just now in our Old Testament reading, or from 11.31, uh, or chapter 12 of Daniel, verse 11. Daniel has prophesied a time when a foreign power would overthrow the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple. The Congress would abolish the cultic worship of God, and worse, they would defile the sanctuary and replace it with the abomination or the images or the idols or the false gods of the neighboring countries. Friends, Daniel's prophecy would come true some 350 years later. 350 years later, in 168 BC, when Antiochus IV, a Syrian king, would come and abolish the Jewish sacrificial worship on the altar, and who would destroy the original altar, the original altar that was made of cedar wood and inlaid with gold. He would destroy the, the altar um, to God and replace it with an altar that he made himself to glorify his God, Zeus. More than that, he sacrificed a pig on it, thus desecrating the temple, and thus causing the people to abandon the temple and causing it to become desolate. Now, something very interesting in verse 14 as well. Mark put some words in between some brackets. He said this, let the reader understand. It shows Mark, Mark's concern that the right son sign that will signal the temple's destruction should be identified. And because these things are going to happen, as we will find later on, uh, after the crucifixion of Christ. And Christ was going to die a few days from then. He, is very, he wants to make sure that the reader of his um, uh, gospel would be 
would be able to understand which event it was. And also for us reading the gospel today, looking back in history, past the event of the cross, we would be able to identify what event, uh, the event of the destruction of the temple. And so what is this historical event? What is this historical event that Jesus was pointing to? Well, among the various suggestions, one event stood out, something that happened during the Jewish wars of AD 66 to AD 70. The early Jewish historian Josephus recorded how in the winter of AD 67 through to the spring of AD 68, the Zealots, a group of very nationalistic uh, Jews, led by a man called John of Giscala, took over the temple and appointed an unqualified man named Pani as the high priest. To the Jews, this is a very serious matter because anyone who is not uh, qualified cannot be uh, performing the duties of a high priest. This caused the temple worship to be disrupted and led to its abandonment by Jewish worshippers who would consider Penny as the desecration of the temple as he trampled on the Holy of Holies. Now, in verses 15 to 18, Christians were told by Jesus, they were told to flee to the mountains Jesus said, if you were on the rooftop, flat rooftop, and you see this abomination or hear about this abomination happening in the temple, if you are on the fifth rooftop, don't try to go down into your house to collect your things. Just run down the steps on the outside of the building and run towards the, the hills. If you are in the field, do not even go back to collect an outer garment. Just run, run, run towards the, the mountains. And Jesus records something uh, he, he thinks, uh, he prays it would be especially difficult for pregnant women or for those with nursing babies. And he prays that it wouldn't happen during winter because that would increase greatly the risk of exposure and also the difficulty of them trying to escape. But this doesn't address the question, what will be the cause of the temple's destruction? Now, this is what happened in history. In the summer of AD 70, during the rebellion of the Zealots, after they desecrated the temple, the Roman armies under General Titus would be sent from Rome to quell the rebellion. They would lay siege around Jerusalem. No one could get in, or no one, and no one could get out. And food and water would run out. The people would suffer as never before especially the pregnant women and the very young and helpless. And so Jesus described this in verse 19. Let me read it to you. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Now, this is a particularly difficult verse, and there are many, many interpretations of this. Let me just give you two views. The first one of which I disagree with, uh, and I will tell you the reasons why, and my own personal view, the, the second view. Now, the first view is a futurist view. 
The futurist view view that these events, this tribulation will happen at the end of the world. This will happen at the end of the world, in the future. Now, I personally don't think that it is right because just taking it from this passage, I see that in the context of Mark 13, this cannot be so. Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple. And number two, later, Jesus in verses 24 to 27 is going to explain what it will mean when he really returns the day of the Lord. Number three, when that day happens, there is no need to hide. There is no need to run and try and run to the mountains because there is no need to hide. And number four, in verse 33, in verse 32, he says, no one, not even the Son, will know the, the day or that hour. So why would he now point to a sign that will indicate the hour or the day or the time when he will return? It's for these four reasons, I think, within the context of this passage, that I don't think this view is right. I, however, take the second view, the historical view. I take the view that says that these things happened or will happen in the history of the church. As Jesus was speaking, the things haven't happened yet, but it will happen in the history of the church. And we know in a later passage that we will come to, it will happen within one generation. And Jesus is going to talk about that. So why use words that we read in verse 19? Well, Jesus used words that, are, that were typical in Scripture to describe God's awesome judgment on falling on nations and on His people. He just used words that are powerful to conjure up an image of the powerful uh, judgment that will fall on disobedient nations and people. Yet in verse 20, we see some hope. Jesus pointed to two signs of, the, of, the, um, two signs of God's grace. Firstly, the time of suffering would be shortened. And this really happened in history. Because we know that the siege, the siege by Titus lasted only five months. And number two, not everyone in the city would die, including those who disobeyed, who disobeyed, uh, let me start again, who disobeyed Christ's command to flee to the mountains. Not everyone would die. Some of those who remain in the city will be chosen and elected by God to live. But then false prophets and false Christs will always be sure to make their appearances, especially in times of trouble, Jesus warned. If you turn back with me to verse 6, Jesus warned then that the appearance of false Christs, false Christs would mark the beginnings of the birth pains. They will say that the troubles in the, wars then, in the world then, the wars, the earthquakes, and the famines will pronounce the coming of the, of the Son of Man. But Jesus warned, these events would only lead to the fall of Jerusalem and the temple's destruction, not the coming of the Son of Man. And here in verses 21 and 22, false Christs and prophets again would appear, who would say that the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple marked the end of the world. But do not be misled, Christ says in verse 23. Just be on guard. I've told you all these things before. Now, friends, the destruction of the temple, the siege of Jerusalem, would still be God's judgment. 
but not the global judgment against the sinful world. The destruction of temple and city would mark the judgment of God against his people who has forfeited their right to the position and the claim to be his people. But it would not be the day of the coming of the Son of Man. Now, in the following verses, 24 and 27, Jesus will begin to explain what it would mean for him to come back, what it means for him, for the Son of Man to come. He will use words taken straight out of Scripture to describe what will really mean uh, at the end of history. We are on part three now. What next? Verses 24 to 27. Let me read verses 24 to 25 for you. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. First of all, let's notice what Jesus is saying. After that tribulation, very specific, the events of AD 70 that we were discussing just now. And number two, the sun and the moon will not give off their light and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Using words from the prophets, Isaiah chapter 24, Ezekiel chapter 20, 32, and Joel chapters 2 and 3. Words that were used to describe the awesome day of the Lord. And number 3, in verse 26, Jesus used the words, the Son of Man. Words that were used from the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. The Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, using words to, in the Old Testament to describe the awesome sight of the coming of the Son of God. Power that belongs only to the Creator God. Friends, you know what? No one will be able to miss Jesus' coming. The, the cross has not happened yet, but no one will be able to miss Jesus' coming. So this event was not talking about Jesus' coming. And his coming will be a colossal and universal event set amidst great glory and power. But in verse 27, Jesus comforted them. He would send his angels to gather all those who put their trust in him from the corners of the earth and heaven. And we move on to the next part, Stay Alert, part two, uh, from verses 28 to 31. Well, let's look at question, the question in verse four again. The disciples ask, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, so far, Jesus has just been addressing the second part of the question regarding the sign that will point to the uh, temple's destruction well, Jesus in this section began to give them an answer to the when part. Not an answer that they expected, but an answer nonetheless. Let me read 28 to you. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. The things that would happen from verses 6 to 23 would indicate the new shoots of the fig tree the temple, the desecration of the temple, and the siege and the, the destruction of the temple, that would indicate the new shoots of the fig tree. And summer will indicate the destruction of the temple. 
And in verse 29, we see something that Jesus said here. You know that he is near. Now, who is he? Who is this he? Jesus meant General Titus, the human agent that God would use to bring his judgment on his people. And as we know, these things did come to pass in AD 70, just 40 years after Jesus said this. The time of one generation, 40 years. Just as Jesus has said, that would happen. Let me read 31 to you. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The destruction of the temple has one very significant theological impact. The destruction will indicate that the temple itself will no longer be the center of worship for God's people. The center of worship would be on the Son of Man, whose words will remain unshaken even when world history comes to an end. The one to whom the words of Scripture pointed to and the one whose very words would and had become Scripture. So Jesus went on in the last part of our, our passage uh, to, sh to, to warn his disciples to stay alert. Verses 32 to 37. Jesus continued then to address the question of the timing of his coming in glory to gather his people to him. Now, friends, unlike in Matthew, the disciples did not ask this question in Mark. But Jesus has just given them a vivid picture of his coming in glory in verses 24 to 27 that we looked at just now. So I think uh, Jesus would have thought that it was natural that there would be some curiosity about the timing of such a tremendous event. And let me read uh, verse 32 to you, how he answered and addressed this uh, curiosity. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now this poses a dilemma for us, isn't it? Is it possible that the Son of Man himself, who in verse 26 has just said he would return riding on his chariots of clouds, or who, in verse 27, has also just said he will send out his angels to gather his people from the four corners of the earth and heaven to be with him on that very last day, would it be possible that this Son of Man, the Son of God, will not know the time or hour of that day? How do we explain this? Well, the best explanation for this is Jesus, in his humanness, had chosen not to know the time, the hour or the day when he would return. He emptied himself of this knowledge because that was not his priority as a human being. His priority when he came down as a human being was to come and to obey his father's command to save the world, which he did. Paul describes the humanness of Jesus in this way in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 7. Let me read to you. Jesus Christ, who, know, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus made himself nothing. And Jesus repeated his warning in verse 33. He said this, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. 
Even he himself has chosen not to know. So just stay on guard, be alert. And in the remainder of the passage, in verses 34 to 37, Jesus ended it all with a very mini parable about the master of the house going on his travels and leaving his servants with their respective work to do. The servants, including the doorkeeper, here representing the church with her multiple and varied ministries, and the master representing uh, Jesus, our Saviour and Lord himself. That too carried the same message that because the servants did not know the time or the hour that the, the master would return, that was even more reason for them to stay on guard and stay awake. So friends, there was a pretty long passage that we went through just now. In conclusion, what can we bring home with us from this passage? Well, the first thing we notice is that Jesus throughout this passage has been warning his disciples to be on guard, to stay alert. Just what is he asking us to stay alert, to be on guard for? I think that he asks us to stay on guard and to be alert for his second coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, to be on guard during this time when we are sitting down and, and waiting for the, him to come, we should be on guard against ourselves. And Mark's passage today tells us three things about the Lord's return. The first one is, Jesus' return will be certain. Now, Benjamin Franklin once said that there were two certainties in life. The first one, taxes, and the second one is death. Well, old Ben was wrong. There is a third certainty, the certainty above all certainties, and that is, it is certain that the Christ will return. Now, friends, knowing that the Lord is sure to return, how do we live our lives then? How do we respond to this truth? The answer must be, don't be disobedient. And in the multitude of human disobedience of God, two must stand out in their importance. Firstly, the great commandment in Matthew 22. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and to love your neighbour as yourself. It is because that we do not love God and neighbour that we sin against Him and we sin against our neighbour. The reason for hatred, the reason for malice and lies and gossip, the reason for lust and covetousness, the reason for murder and wars, all lie in our inability to love. The second is the great commandment, uh, the great commission in Matthew 28:19, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Go and tell everyone that God has come in the person of His only Son, who died on the cross, so that believing in Him, we will be saved. I suggest to you that these two are inseparably joined together. It is because we cannot love God and we cannot love our neighbours as ourselves that we do not want to extend this message of salvation that was commanded of us in the Great, commandment, in the great Commission. Friends, everything depends. The obedience of God, the obedience to love God, 
the, obedient, the uh, command to love God and to love our neighbours must uh, not be disobeyed. Now, second thing about Jesus' return. Jesus' return will be unexpected in the sense that it will not be preceded by any signals. So what does that mean to us? That means that we shouldn't speculate about natural signs and man-made signs or you know, uh, natural disasters, uh, things like the uh, explosion of the uh, atomic uh, station, generating stations, and things like that. Don't let false prophets and messiahs mislead us. When that things happen, lots of false prophets stood up and said, oh, the end of the world is coming. But don't let false prophets and messiahs mislead us. It is so very easy to have itchy ears and to follow after every wind of change. So again, friends, let's not try to work out. Work out from what some people would uh, tell us, would want us to believe are indicators of when the Lord will return or what signs will precede His coming. Sometimes they will even point to the Bible or to miracle workers who will predict the coming. But don't believe them. And in the meantime, be faithful to the ministries that God has called for you to do within the church and outside the church in the wider community. No matter how humble people might think they are and no matter how insignificant you yourself think uh, these ministries are, be faithful to the ministries that God has called for you to do. And thirdly, Jesus' return will be spectacular. But don't be scared. Those falling of stars and the sun and the moon not giving their light would be dreadful for unbelievers. Did you think so? They will have no hope. They cannot run. The world is shaking. The heavens are shaking. Stars are falling down. And they will have no place to run. They have no hope. It would be dreadful for unbelievers. But for believers who have put their trust in Jesus, we don't have to be worried or to be concerned because Jesus promised that when the Son of Man comes, He will send His angels to gather every single one of His disciples, and not one will be lost. The Apostle John tells us his vision in Revelation about the glorious new creation, the new earth and the new heaven, and life everlasting, where God Himself will dwell among us on earth, and death will be no more. So friends, as we watch and stay alert, we know that the one who promised us all these things will be sure to bring them to pass. And neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Taken from Romans 8, 38. So, friends, Stay alert and be on watch for the words of our Saviour God will come true. He will be sure to return. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as uh, we meditate on this passage, we want to thank you for reminding us of your promise uh, that not one of us will be lost when you send your Son, Jesus Christ, to come for us. Our judgment will fall on unbelievers. Lord, we know that we'll be safe and we'll be gathered from all corners of the earth and heaven to be with you. And Father, we want to thank you for this wonderful privilege and we look forward to it.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.